It's really good. It's really good to sing to the Lord, isn't it? It is. It is. Thank you guys for leading us in worship. So, uh, so very appreciated. So I brought my lunch with me today. You'll see in just a second. I'm sort of making a habit of this. Uh, we'll talk about what that is in a minute. Uh, but uh, we've been in a series called Mistaken Identity. We're making our way uh, verse by verse, sometimes uh, one word at a time almost, through the book of Colossians. It's been a lot of fun to see what God would say to us. If you have your Bible this morning, I invite you to open it to Colossians chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles uh, various places in the back. You can take one of our Bibles um, and just consider it yours. They're blue, uh, they're on the back table, uh, they're on the side over there. Just take one of our Bibles and consider it yours. We will have it on the screen as well. So you might remember a couple of weeks ago I brought my lunch with me, and it wasn't exactly lunch, but it was a lot of fake uh, fake drinks, if you will, fake sugary drinks. So uh, you might remember there was Dr. Thunder, and there was Dr. Shasta, and there, there was a lot of Dr. Pepper knockoffs. Do you remember this? And um, if, if, you, if you have no idea what I'm talking about, I apologize. Uh, you can't catch up online, though. Uh, it's a sermon from a couple of weeks ago. And so I talked about this fact that there is a... I don't have as many knockoffs today, thankfully, because uh, I don't want anybody to go into diabetic shock. But there is a significant, significant difference between, between an imitation and the real thing. There's a significant difference between a knockoff and the real deal. And that's true in Dr. Pepper. Uh, that's true in $100 bills. If you had a counterfeit and you tried to play, pay with it, chances are somebody played this game. No. Right? Right? You ever had anybody do that to you? They hold the $100 bill up. They see it's got the little strip in it and all the fake ima- all the all the images that are built in. Right? There's a big, big difference between the counterfeit and a real thing. Between an imitation and the real thing, between a fake and the real thing, between a false version and the real thing, a look-alike and the real thing, a real difference between a wannabe and the real deal, between the real thing and a counterfeit. And there's a significant difference between false teaching about Jesus and what the Word of God says about Jesus. You know, when, when banks teach you how to identify counterfeits, They don't spend all their energy on the counterfeit. They spend all their energy on the real thing, right? They spend all their energy making sure you know that it's got this mark and that mark, that it's got this little strip in it, that the paper feels a certain way. In fact, I worked in a bank when I was uh, in my seminary, my grad school days, and you begin to notice easily the difference between the feel of money and the feel of other paper if you will. There's just not anything that you experience that is quite like the real thing, the real deal. So so last time we were in this passage, this beautiful, in Colossians chapter 1, and this passage is, is poetic. It's In fact, it was likely a song of the earliest church. And in this text, I taught us again a couple of weeks ago that I promise you, whatever your understanding of Jesus Your understanding of Jesus is too small. Today I want to say the exact same thing, except I want to talk about our salvation. That my understanding of salvation is too small. And your understanding of salvation is too small. And when false teaching begins to arise, 
we notice a lot of different things. And again, some of this a little bit, I just want to remind us and catch us up from a couple of weeks ago. But Christian counterfeits detour and distract our lives, ultimately destroy our lives. That when we neglect the true, it opens the door for the false in our life. And the best way to counter false teaching about Jesus is is a deeply personal, real relationship with the true Jesus as revealed in the Bible. You know, one of the greatest keys to understanding why false teaching begins to emerge is to begin to understand pride. You know, there are a lot of core sins, if you will, um, but pride certainly is among those. That sense that everything revolves around me, that sense that I know better. I think about how much pride I have to have to come along and say, you know, the Bible is written is not quite complete enough. Let me give you a little bit more and equate what I think with what God thinks. That's pride. And a lot of that was going on in this church in the town of Colossae. And so I want to help you understand a bit about why teaching of this nature would emerge. Someone might come along and say, look, you know, what Jesus has done for us is fine and all, but what really gets us over the finish line is you or me and my ability to be good, my ability to do certain rituals, my ability to be ultra-religious, my ability to... Notice who the focus becomes about. Like that's where false teaching often emerges. So let me read for you, and if you have your Bibles, read with me, Colossians chapter 1. And I'm going to back up to a verse we'd already been in, actually. You're probably already there, and I still got to find it. Colossians chapter 1, I'm going to begin in verse 13. This is what the Word of God says. For he, this would be God, the he in this case. For He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now we've already talked a little bit about these verses, but I really want to hone in on them today because there are certain words here that are significant. There's the word rescue. There's the word brought us. There's the word redemption. There's the word forgiveness. There's a bunch of other words we're going to kind of anchor on here. And I want you to see how significant these words are. In whom we have for redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The Son, verse 15 says, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in Him all things were created, things in heaven and things on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. And all things have been created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He, Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything He might have the supremacy. He might be preeminent. For God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Him, and through Him, through Jesus here, to reconcile to Himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through His blood, shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish 
and free from accusation. If, or maybe the better translation here would be, since you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move on from the hope held out in the gospel. And this is the gospel that you heard and has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. He says, this is the gospel. And it's a, I think I called it this a few weeks ago, it's a dense description of the gospel. I don't mean boring. I mean dense, like, like meaty, like, like heavy. There's a lot going on here. He starts out by describing salvation with words like, like redemption and forgiveness. And then he turns and he focuses in on who Jesus is, that he is the firstborn over all creation, that he is the firstborn from among the dead. And then he comes back to reconciliation, another picture of salvation. And I just want to mention, again, a couple of weeks ago, I really honed in deeply on all of those titles, all of those descriptions of Jesus, right? Firstborn among the dead, firstborn over all creation, that he's before all things, in him all things hold together. In, in him, he might have the supremacy. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. So, I, so I'm just going to touch on it today because it's who Christ is that makes all of the salvation we're going to talk about today possible. But if you've ever come to church and heard words that sound really religious to you, again, words like reconciliation or redemption or forgiveness... I simply want you to see that so many of these words have deep, deep meaning behind them. In fact, they're beautiful pictures. And you and I tend to not think of words as pictures because we're very literate, meaning we're trained to read, right? Actually, we're trained to lead, read and write, if you think about it. But, but I, would, I would just note for you that for the bulk of history... Probably most of humanity didn't know how to read and write. If you travel Europe and you see the old churches, and by old I mean the ones that are older than our country, and you look at the stained glass and you see all of the pictures and, and, and in the end a lot of iconography and other things, and you wonder why things were built that way then. It's because people couldn't read this. The people who could read this were the educated. But the average person couldn't. But what they could do in those old stained glass windows is they could look and they could see pictures that would tell them the story of God, that would tell them the story of humanity, that would tell them the story of Jesus and the story of salvation. They say a picture is worth at least... As long as it's not a boring picture, right? And so I want to show you that all of these significant words that sort of have a lot of deep theology behind them are really words that are pictures. And if you think that you have salvation all figured out, that, that you've come to salvation maybe, maybe two, three decades ago, and that, that you, you know, it's like, okay, Brian, I already got this one. Like, 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 I checked that salvation box a lot of years ago. We should never become bored with the gospel. 
We should never believe that there's not room to grow and that we have it all figured out. Rachel talked to us just a minute ago about the fact that there's that we're in a relationship with Jesus. And we were singing about that relationship and the significance of that relationship. I will often say that Christianity isn't meant to be a religion. It's meant to be a relationship with Jesus Christ. So Jesus didn't come to start a religion called Christianity. He came to correct a religion, a religiosity, if you will, and begin a relationship with us. It's not a religion. It's a relationship with Jesus. So let me show you, just in the time we have today, five pictures of grace. Five pictures of for a better understanding of salvation. Five pictures that you'll see all throughout the New Testament for our relationship with Jesus Christ. That first picture is the picture of rescue. This comes from uh, the world of sort of a battlefield where you have two armies that are at war, if you will. It's a picture of rescue. I stood without God as a prisoner of war, Before salvation, this is the picture. I stood without God as a prisoner of war before salvation, but now I am free because Jesus rescued me. Rescued. Verse 13 said, For He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness. So rescue conjures up kind of a lot of images. Right? We have a couple of firefighters in our church, right? Right? Thank you guys for what you do. Saw the nice red uh, car out, outside today. It's always a beautiful thing. If they ever run out in the middle of service, we sort of know that, that at least there's a possibility that what they're going to do is rescue someone. Does this, this, this language make sense, doesn't it? Right? Someone might be trapped inside a burning building. Someone might be trapped In a different sense, not in the world of firefighting, but in a different sense, behind enemy lines. Someone might be drowning in the ocean and the Coast Guard goes out to perform a a rescue. Exactly. This is a, a picture. We can envision what a rescue is. For He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness. This language shows up a lot of other places in the New Testament. And again, I just listed a lot of other verses for you here today. I may not quote all of them, but I'm going to quote a lot of them. Galatians chapter 1, verse 3. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. To rescue us from the present evil age. In Colossians he says, to rescue us from the dominion of darkness. Romans 10.13 uses similar but different language. It, It says we are saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What are we saved from? We would say from our sins. But we are saved not only from our sins. We are saved from the judgment we deserve. And we are saved... From the dominion of darkness. We have been rescued. Ephesians chapter 2 for verse 5. He has made us alive with Christ when we were dead in our transgressions. For it is by grace you have been saved. This, this language of being saved that we talk about. That when did you get saved? 
that, that I have salvation in Jesus Christ is the language of rescue. That I stood without God, trapped in the dominion of darkness, and Jesus came on a rescue mission to set me free from my sins, from the evil present age, from the dominion of darkness. I think it's good to remember here that when we have friends who are in this world, but friends who are not Christians, that they, they're just that, they're friends, not enemies. We a lot of times in the Christian world make those who don't agree with our faith into enemies. But the people out around us in this world who don't believe what we believe, the people around us in this world who reject what we believe, they're not the enemy. They're the captive of the enemy. And it's very much worth noting that they're prisoners of war, in a sense, much like we were. I don't know if you noticed this or not, but it's plain as day to me that much of the media and much of the world of power in, a, in, in not just America, but in anywhere in the world, that the world of power thrives on convincing you that you have enemies. And politicians will try to convince you that they're here to save you from those enemies. Again, that's not just true in American politics. It tends to be true across the board. You turn on the news, and within seconds, you can tell the bias of a station just by who they make into the enemy. And Jesus came and said, yes, there is an enemy, but he's not you. And by extension, I would tell you, he's not the people who disagree with you. He's not, the enemy is not the people who look different than you. The enemy is not the people who vote different than you. That the enemy is not the people who are a different age than you or from a different country than you. I stood without God as a prisoner of war, as a captive of the dominion of darkness, and Jesus came and rescued me. And Jesus thrives on making friends of enemies. You'll see more of that as we end with the text today. If the good news is this good, if the gospel is this good, why would I think I need to improve on that? But that's what was going on in Colossae. That there were teachers who came into the church who said, well, yes, Jesus is good, but you need more than Jesus. Let us tell you what else you need. And so Paul is setting all of this up in order to be able to say, you don't need more than Jesus. Jesus is enough. You just need a rescue by him. That's enough. The picture, the first picture is a picture of grace. The second picture is a picture of adoption. I should pause here for just a second. When I say prisoner of war, I more than recognize that some of you have served in wars. And that it's entirely possible that somebody sitting here today has been a POW. And mo- no means do I mean to minimize that. I just want us to capture the, the significance 
of what this is saying and its reality. In the same way, some of you have experienced adoption. And in a similar way, adoption can present, when we talk about it openly, a trigger for some of us. That, that it's hard to think about why was I in a place of needing adoption. But I want you to see this beautiful picture of adoption that I stood without God as a stranger, but now I am his child. Now I am an heir, an heir, not A-I-R, but H-E-I-R. I am an heir because he adopted me into the royal family. For he has rescued us, verse 13 said, from the dominion of darkness. And that that sets me free. (laughs) But he didn't just do that. He brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. The word rescue, the Greek word was erusato. Here the the Greek word brought us is metastasin. I almost can't pronounce it. Metastasin. And it goes beyond rescuing us from the dominion of darkness. It's taking us back to his home, back to his kingdom. But he doesn't just bring us into his kingdom. He actually goes further than that, and he makes us family. And this is why I say that we should use the language. The picture here is the picture of adoption. We are brought out of the dominion, the kingdom of darkness, and brought into the kingdom of his family. And by the way, do you know how often we build our own little dominions? And much of our world is built on building our own little dominions, if you will. But as a Christian, I am rescued from all my own dominion building because I have a kingdom I am a part of that is better than the dominions of this world, and better than any of the dominions I could ever build. And the reality is, when I'm brought into the kingdom of Jesus, I am brought into the family of Jesus. Again, notice these are relational terms. I was a prisoner of war. I didn't have a relationship. He came to rescue me. Now I have a relationship. I was on the outside. I was a stranger looking in, but now I am his child. I am an heir Because he adopted me into the royal family. Think about how often this shows up in other places in the Bible. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3 says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. It might be worth noting here that Colossians 1 and Ephesians 1 are very parallel. Meaning, they were actually written in a very similar moment. And I think Paul had the same description of salvation on his mind when he wrote both. Because they say almost the same thing. In fact, I would go as far as to say that this comes from sermons that he would preach. About who Jesus was. And so it was very familiar material. But verse 4 of Ephesians 1 says, For He chose us, this would be God the Father, He chose us into Him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. And in love He predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with His pleasure and will. 
Now, I just said a couple of words that send some of us, some Christians, down a, a streak that, like, then we spend billions of, of, of hours on, wait, 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 he chose us, he predestined us. Are you saying there's a sequence to this and that God chose us first? And I'm going to say, yes. Are you saying then that, like, we don't get a choice? That's not what I'm saying. That is what some theologians decide to say because we have to try to make logical sense of everything. And in our logic, we tend to set up this sequencing that gets so minute that we just get lost along the way. But if you've ever heard people talk about predestination or God's choosing or being the elect, those aren't just theological terms that are sort of interesting to argue about. Those terms come from the world of adoption. Adoption. That we are, it said in verse 5, predestined us for adoption to sonship. Don't make this into a guy thing. Adoption into his family as sons and daughters. Brothers and sisters with Jesus in many senses. I have many friends who are adopted on one side. And I also have several friends who have adopted on the other side. For my friends who have been adopted, almost to a T, most of them that I know struggle a bit with that. Because it's not easy to have a story that says, I was was not in the family. Why was I not in the family? But then the adoptive story says, but someone chose me. And again, of all of my friends who have adopted kids, I I would say it this way. When did the choosing happen? Like, we have great friends from our Colorado days who adopted two beautiful girls. But, but, But was that choosing? Did that choosing happen only after those kids were born? Actually, no. That choosing happened happened in their parents' heart long before. We knew the parents. That they were longing for children. That they chose adoption. That they chose those kids that they wanted. This is saying that God wants me in His family. Romans 8. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. And the Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again, but rather the Spirit, Holy Spirit here, that that you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by Him we cry, Abba, Father. And the Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we might also share in his glory. That whole language of choosing and predestination, I, I simply want you to see that the picture here is a relational 
picture of adoption, that God has adopted me into his family. And if, if the good news is this good, why would I feel the need to add anything to that? To turn to anything else? Why would I? The third picture I want you to see today is a picture of redemption. There's a picture of reconciliation. There's a picture of adoption. Now I want you to see the picture of redemption. And this has a beautiful picture behind it as well. Verse 14 says, in whom we have redemption. The Greek word here is apolutrosin. The picture here is from a, from a marketplace and 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 it's it's a beautiful picture but it's not an easy picture because the picture is from the marketplace where slaves are bought and sold and in no way is our teaching this an embracing of the realm or the world of slavery but i want you to recognize that slavery still exists in the world today And it has existed for almost the entire history of humanity. And so, he uses this word, redemption. And here's the picture, if you will. That I stood without God as a slave to sin, but now I am free because Jesus paid my ransom. And again, I just want to go a little further. I want to paint the picture. In that day, slaves were traded or bought and sold. And we wouldn't affirm that in any way, right? Right. But in that world where slaves were bought and sold, you could buy a slave in order to have them become your slave. But they also had a word for buying a slave in order to set them free. In fact, slavery in that day, and this is not a defense of slavery, I just want you to understand the picture. Slavery in that day was largely about economics. That if you were of the class of the poor, which was was a, a, a vast group of people, if you were not wealthy... And to put it in our terms, if you were not middle class, but I'm not sure they really had middle class. They, they had the rich, and they had the free, and they had the slaves. And the reason a person would end up in slavery is because they couldn't provide for themselves, and they needed a way to be uh, taken care of, or they had debts they could not pay. And to pay those debts off, they would become a slave to someone else. And when they had worked off their debt, that owner might want to sell them to someone else. And someone could come along and buy them and say, now you are my slave. But they also had a word for buying a slave, not to become your slave, but to set them free. And that word was redemption. And the way they were set free was by paying a ransom. We think of ransoms in terms of like kidnapping. But in their day, they thought of ransom in terms of buying a slave out of slavery in order to set them free. Does this make sense? Verse 14, in whom we have redemption. 
Ephesians chapter 1 verse 7, again, sort of a parallel verse says, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole, or some translations say, on a tree. Titus 2.14 says, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. 1 Peter 1.18, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, who was a lamb without blemish or defect revelation chapter 5 verse 9 picks this beautiful picture of of someday that they sang a new song saying you're worthy to take the scroll and to open its scrolls because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for god persons from every tribe and language and people and nation and that's why we think we as a church should look like we're from every tribe and tongue and people and nation Because we have been redeemed. Because He paid a ransom. And to be specific about it, the ransom in this place was His life and His blood. And that He was, as 1 Peter said, without blemish. That's significant because later in the text in Colossians we're studying, He's going to say, we're turned into people who are holy, who are blameless, without blemish. That everything Christ was and is gets applied to me. That that's the picture of salvation. Redemption is a relational term. And if salvation is this good, if the good news is this good, why would I want to turn to anything else? Fourth picture of salvation is a picture of forgiveness. Forgiveness. Verse 14 says in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The picture here comes from the world of banking. Forgiveness doesn't seem like a, a banking term to you all that much, does it? Right. <laughs> right. Right. My bank kind of likes me to pay my bills, right? They like me to have money in the bank. They like me to not be overdrawn. And they like me to pay my debts. The world of forgiveness was a banking term among others in that day. And the picture here is that I stood without, I stood without God owing a debt I cannot pay. But now I owe nothing because Jesus paid the debt I owe. When we talk about forgiveness, this is the picture we're painting. That I owe a debt I cannot pay and He paid a debt He did not owe. He paid my debt for me. Now, we think of forgiveness as just kind of wiping the debt away. That that what I really want with my debts, I don't know, if someone showed up tomorrow and said, hey, you don't owe your mortgage anymore, it's just been forgiven, It's it's just wiped off the books. It's like it didn't exist. You'd celebrate, wouldn't you? You don't seem all that excited about that idea. I'm certain you would celebrate. 
You want to help with mine? (laughs) So let's take it a step further. Let's say the bank reaches out to you and says, "Your your debt is forgiven, it's gone, it's canceled, but it's canceled because somebody else paid it. At this point, aren't you thinking, who paid my debt? Like, who goes around paying other people's mortgages? Wouldn't you want to know if there was a great Uncle Phil out there? Right? Up in the sky somewhere who paid your debt? Wouldn't you want to know? Wouldn't you feel appreciative? Wouldn't you want to express thanks to the great uncle in the sky? Let's go with the great father in the sky. How's that sound? Yeah. The reality is I stood without God owing a debt I cannot pay. But Jesus paid the debt, a debt he did not owe. And my debt is forgiven. And so we end up with words like forgiveness and sacrifice. 1 John 2, verse 2, He's the atoning sacrifice for our sins, not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Isaiah 1.18, Now come, let us settle the matter, says the Lord, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. They are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. How is it that my sins become white as snow, though they were as red as crimson? Because His blood that was red as crimson was shed on my behalf so that the holiness and righteousness, the, the what He has, I can now have. Psalm 51, verse 7, Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. That Forgiveness is a cleansing. Psalm 103, verse 12, For as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Jeremiah 31, 34, No longer will they teach their neighbor, and the new covenant is the context for Jeremiah 31, No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least to the greatest. They will know me. That's relational. They will know me, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness, and I will remember their sins no more. Why will he remember his, their sins no more? Because he sent his son. And what did it take? It took a cross. Like at this point, I don't know about you, but I don't deserve any of this. And I stand here thinking like, why in the world would God want to do this? And the answer is because he loves me. He loves me. And if the gospel is this good, why would I want to turn to anything else? Five pictures, we've done four. The fifth picture is a picture of reconciliation. Reconciliation. Reconciliation works like this. You have two people who are enemies, but they are put into peace. That's reconciliation. I stood before God without God as an enemy. But now I am his friend because Jesus made peace by shedding his blood. Now I am his friend because Jesus made peace by shedding his blood. 
I'm going to skip those verses in the middle that give the perfect picture of who Jesus is, right? He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. We've preached those before, but I want to pick it up. Verse 19, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him, through Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And once you were alienated from God and you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish, free from accusation. Everything Christ has is attributed now to me without blemish, free from accusation. And if you continue in your faith, really the idea here is since you continue in your faith, established and firmed, and since you do not move on or move on from the hope held out in the gospel, that this is the gospel you heard that has now been proclaimed to you and to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. This language of reconciliation is throughout the New Testament. Romans chapter 5 verse 10. For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? 2 Corinthians 5 17. If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. And all of this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. In 2 Corinthians, he says he's given us the message of reconciliation and the ministry of reconciliation. And, and, and a lot of what that means is that our business is the business of helping people who are enemies with God become friends with God. People who were on the outside looking in to understand that they are loved by God. And this is a story we get to share with the world around us, that God loves them and wants to be in relationship with them. This makes sense, doesn't it? This is what salvation really is. Five pictures. I was a POW in need of rescue. I was a stranger in need of family. I was a slave in need of freedom. I was a debtor in need of forgiveness. And I was an enemy in need of peace. And Jesus shed his blood on the cross for me. And this is really the one thing I'm trying to say. I've repeated it over and over and over. The one thing, if good news is this good, why would I turn to anything else? I mean, Jesus is far better than Dr. Pepper. Please don't misunderstand the analogy. But Dr. Thunder's got nothing. And so false teaching in this world about Jesus has nothing on a relationship with Jesus. I stood without God as a POW and he set me free. I stood without God as a stranger. He adopted me as his child. I stood without God as a slave to sin. He paid my ransom. I stood without, without God with an impossible debt. And he not only forgave it, he paid it. And I stood without God as an enemy and he's made me his friend. Like this, this changes everything. If you need Jesus today, why would I want to turn to anything else? Do you know where the starting point is to turning to Jesus? It's actually the word turn. Biblically, we, we call that repentance, which is another picture, actually. 
right? Repentance means to turn, to turn from this to this, to turn from my sin to Jesus Christ. After we are saved, a picture in and of itself, we declare our faith by becoming baptized, which means to immerse, which is another picture of the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That there is so much in salvation that is about pictures. Because Jesus wants to paint the picture that God loves you. And my question to you is, does that change anything? Yeah. Not just it changed something for me when I was 15 and I gave my life to Jesus Christ, but it changes my Monday and my Tuesday and my Wednesday because I'm a child and God wants to have a relationship with me and I am a friend of God. I am a son of God. You are a daughter, a son of God. This is why I titled this series Mistaken Identity. Because we need to find our real identity in that relationship with Jesus Christ. He's paid it all. If you need Jesus today, we always close with two prayers. Maybe you'd pray this prayer of salvation with me. We're going to pray two prayers. One, a prayer of salvation. The second, a prayer of application. And if you need Jesus today, maybe online or right here in the room, you'd, you'd say today, I need, I need this. Like, I don't deserve any of it, but I need it. And I want to turn to you, Jesus. You can just tell him. The magic's not in the prayer. Saved people aren't people who prayed a certain prayer. Saved people are people who've begun a relationship with Jesus Christ, but it often begins by talking with God. Like this, dear Jesus. I don't deserve any of this. But you came for me. And it's personal. And so I confess that I need rescue. And I need adoption. And I need freedom. And I need forgiveness. And I need peace. And I turn to you, Jesus. And I put my faith in you. I believe you died for my sins. That you rose again. That you're alive now. And since you are, live in me. Begin a relationship with me. I commit to you my life. In Jesus' name. Amen. If that's you. And you prayed a prayer similar to that, or even that prayer right now with me today. Man, I would love to know that. would love to celebrate it. It's such a big deal. We would love to come alongside you and help you understand more about the beauty of salvation and all that we're talking about here. But I can't, I can't celebrate if I don't know about it. So I'm asking you to let me know. You can let me know on a communication card or a digital communication card. You can let me know by telling me after service. You can let me know by telling someone around you and have them tell me. You can let me know by emailing me. I'm Brian, B-R-I-A-N, at harvestchurcheugene.com. Some of you may have prayed that prayer right now today for the very first time. Some of you prayed a similar prayer a few weeks back, a few years back. 
few decades back. I don't know about you, but I never want to lose the beauty, the majesty, the amazement of these pictures. Do you? I don't want to lose it. I want to cling to that beauty. So if that's you, would you pray this prayer of application with me? And again, maybe pray it out loud today. Dear Jesus, thank you for rescuing us, for adopting us, for redeeming us, for forgiving us, for reconciling with us. We commit that we will not hoard this good news to ourselves. But we'll share that love and give that love and live that love with our city and with our world. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, he is good. If the good news is this good, why in the world would I think that I want to turn somewhere else? So as you go today, I want you to go in the beauty, in the majesty of that personal relationship with Jesus. Knowing this, you are loved. That's who God says you are. I love you guys too. If I can serve you in some way, please let me know. As we leave today, I just want to remind us in the back, we've got baskets for those communication cards. There's a